Okay, rock and roll. Here we go. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 10. And if you've missed a few weeks or you're just joining us, we are in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Isaiah, one of the major prophets, major, uh, not because the other prophets aren't as uh, profitable, but because it's one of the larger prophets. And uh, so, so this is a, this is an endeavor. We're, we're going to turn the page here into chapter 11. So I, I think we've dialed in a good power setting, and we're rocking along in terms of uh, the pace here. Um, but we again come to a uh, a wonderful part of the book of Isaiah that makes us think about the New Testament, and, and we realize um, uh, David Gibson is is preaching again today. So uh, be sure to. Uh, encourage David and, and pray for him as he comes. I know you were all encouraged by his message last week. And uh, David is, is fond of saying, and, and we agree with him, that you really can't understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. And at the same time, the New Testament helps inform the Old. Te- the New Testament helps inform the Old Testament. So it goes both ways, but one is built on the other. And you realize that what we're going to read today is absolutely foundational to understanding the New Testament. In fact, this is really interesting. I didn't plan this. Pastor Terry didn't plan this. We're going to find one more verse in our text today in Isaiah that parallels what Pastor Terry is doing in Romans. Because that's how God put the Bible together. And uh, so it just reminds us again, you know, you're, you're plugging through your New Testament reading plan. You've got to understand the Old Testament. Um, it's like living your whole life on the second story and never realizing there's a story underneath you holding you up the whole time, right? Well, that's what we're going to look at here today. So Isaiah chapter 10 is where we're at, and uh, we'll come to another messianic section in chapter 11 in just a few minutes. But just by way of review, um, uh, the title of the message today is called The Branch of Jesse, and uh, if that doesn't mean anything to you, uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment in terms of what that means. But I mentioned this last time, and I want to bring it up again, one, because I want to keep it in your mind, two, because you may have missed last week, and this is really important. Um, Isaiah is, is the original uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder prophet, I think, because he likes to jump around a lot. He likes to, he's talking about one thing, before you know it, he's talking about this, he's talking about this. That may be the way he preached, or it may be that as the, the book came together, there were uh, thematic uh, decisions that were made from an editing standpoint to put certain messages back to back. But like you, perhaps, I've been frustrated trying to read this book because sometimes sometimes I'm reading Isaiah and I go, what on earth are we even talking about here? I mean, who's he talking to now? And, and who's the audience? And who are the pronouns referring to? And, and if you feel like that, j- just know that you're in good company because Isaiah is challenging because the scenes change so quickly and Isaiah isn't always going to alert us to when one of those scene changes happens. I compared it last week to a movie, right? You're watching a movie, and there's a scene that's developing, and all of a sudden, boom, everything changes, and you're in a different location with different people in a different time maybe even, and now something else develops, and then they jump back to that first scene, right? And they sort of parallel, they develop these two or three different scenes as the movie unfolds. Uh, We call that good movie making, right? Well, that's exactly what's going on here. Isaiah is developing three themes at the same time. And every now and then, he'll change uh, uh, the the camera and he'll take us to that second theme or that third theme. 
And uh, if you don't realize that, you can be frustrated in reading the book and recognizing, I don't even know what we're even talking about now. So let me, let me help you with this by reminding you that there's a three-theme cycle that we see going on in the book, okay? So let me just give you the three themes. The first theme is the theme of warning and the threat of judgment. The book of Isaiah was written to warn the nation of Judah of impending judgment of God if they did not repent of their idolatry and their injustice and their breaking of God's law and their false worship. What we're going to see in the course of God warning Judah, the southern kingdom, about these things in uh, in the book of Isaiah, we're going to see the same threats coming against the northern kingdom, Israel, With the difference being in Isaiah's time, at the time that Isaiah was writing, the northern kingdom will actually be judged, they will be invaded, they will be deported and taken back to Assyria, the land will be desolate, and before Isaiah dies, there will be foreigners living in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. And uh, so a lot of the book is, is talking about that as it develops. But you need to get this. A lot of time in the book of Isaiah, you're going to read about warnings and the threat of judgments. Now, I just told you, but I want to see if you're paying attention. Why is God threatening judgment of his very people? Because of their disobedience. Okay, what are they doing? What are they doing that's so bad? Idolatry. What else? What's that? Pride and arrogance. We saw that last week. What else? Oppression of the poor. What else? Drunkenness. Drunkenness. Yeah, and, and uh, we, we will do this probably in a couple of weeks uh, when we pull the car over from Isaiah and just um, talk about some of the history behind this. But one of the things that's going on in the nation right now is they're supposed to have kings that rule the theocracy of Israel in the fear of the Lord. And for many, many generations, they've had kings that have done what? Yeah, they're ruling for themselves. Are they worshiping Yahweh and leading the people? Yeah, they're, they're they're worshiping idols. They're setting up sanctuaries and altars to these false gods that are around them. And, um, you know, this book is so relevant because... Um, in this culture, the threat of idolatry was, oh, hey, look at that country over there. They have different gods than we do. Look at their crops. They're flourishing. Look at their people. They're numerous. Look at their, uh, their children. They're healthy. Maybe we need to go worship their gods in addition to our God. Or maybe we need to go worship their gods because our God is not, right? That's what idolatry looked like in this culture. You know what idolatry looks like in this culture, in our culture? Hey, look at those happy people over there. Why are they happy? They got a new Ford truck. Maybe I need a new Ford truck, right? Look, look at those retired folks over there, and they, they are they are secure in their retirement. They've, their 401k is flourishing, and you know they're not working and they're enjoying leisure and they're going on trips and all that. And they think, man, that's that's what life's about. I want to be like that someday, right? Idolatry today looks like this. Look at that family over there. Look at how obedient their kids are. You know, maybe maybe they know something I I want to have kids that are as obedient and as healthy, right? And and what are we doing? We're not worshiping false gods like this is this is um, you know the Ashtaroth and the Baals and and uh, and this is Buddha and or whatever. 
but in our hearts we're placing our ultimate affection and trust in something else other than the God of Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with wanting obedient children, right? There's nothing wrong with buying a new truck. There's nothing wrong with having retirement savings and and enjoying leisure. But that's not what life is about if you're a believer. And it's so easy to look around, just like the people in Isaiah's time did, to look around at other people and say, well, maybe that's what life is about. And And to minimize faith in our God and to set our hearts on one of those other things as you know the meaning and purpose of life. So we we got to watch ourselves. You know, just because you know we don't walk into Walmart and see a pantheon of false gods, doesn't mean that we don't struggle with idolatry. It's a materialistic idolatry that we struggle with. It's a security idolatry that we trust with. It's a it's a health idolatry that we trust in. And you say, well, how do I know if I have idolatry in my life? Well, follow your negative emotions. If you follow your negative emotions far enough, you will find what you worship. Anyway, that's for free. We'll we'll come back to that. Second theme is we're going to see the assurance of a remnant. Even in the midst of the threat of judgment and the warning of that coming, God's going to say many times, Isaiah's going to turn the corner, just like he does in our passage today, and he's going to say, but be assured there's a remnant that I'm going to keep. This isn't going to totally result in annihilation of my people There will always be a remnant preserved. And as you've heard Pastor Terry talk about in Romans, even today there is a remnant of the Jewish nation that is being preserved uh, and will be until the time, as Pastor Terry gets into Romans 11 and develops this, of a national revival amongst the Jewish people. But there's a remnant. And then the third thing is the hope of a future king. And we saw that in chapter 7, we saw it in chapter 9, see it in chapter 9, we're going to see it again in chapter 11 today, the hope that a future king's going to come and he's going to be the one to make all things right in the nation. Because remember, this is all about the king and ruling. Remember, Ahaz is the one who is not trusting God and he's making alliances with the wrong people. And, and what's interesting, I noted this last time, that um, those three themes are personified in the three children that we've seen in the last few chapters. Okay, do you remember the three children's names that are mentioned since we've seen in chapter 7? Who are the three kids? Let's let's review this real quick because you got to get this. Three kids. Number 1. Emmanuel. Okay, we saw that in chapter 7. The virgin will be with child, shall bear a son, they shall give him the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Which theme does that remind us of? The hope of a future king, right? That's right. That's the coming king. In fact, that is the king, right? Uh, and then uh, what's the second child that we've seen? What, what's his name? Yeah, you get to practice your Hebrew pronunciation today. Hey, hey, shout it out confidently. That's the only thing that matters, right? You know, we're, we're in Texas where you can make vowels, may, say whatever sound you want to say. That's the joy of living in the South, right? No one's going to question you. They're going to say, oh, they got a, they got a unique drawl here. Now, Shear Yashub. Shear Yashub. What does it mean? That's Isaiah's first son. And he shows up in chapter 7 when Isaiah is commissioned to go to Ahaz and, and warn him about what he's about to do. What does Shear Yashub mean? close yeah shiar is the word for remnant okay shub and, and 
I should, we'll get to this in a minute, but um, we will get to the notes sooner or later, okay? It, it looks in your Bible something like that. Uh, the B is actually pronounced with a V, Yashuv, okay? And, and what that means, you know this word. It's probably some of you know this word. It's built off of this word. Anybody know the word shuv? It's the word return. But that's the literal translation. Shuv is often used. You don't know this? Uh, As soon as I say this, you'll go, oh yeah, I remember that. Shuv is the main Hebrew word for repentance. Why? Because repentance means I'm going the wrong direction. I stop and I do what? I turn 180 degrees and I turn back to God and commit myself to go in the right direction. That's repentance. Shuv, to turn, is one of the words for repentance. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Now watch this develop here in the chapters we're going to see. When he says a remnant will return, we think, hey, they're going to, they're going to make it out of Babylon. They're going to make it out of Assyria. And that's true. But what was Isaiah's message really? A remnant will return, meaning a remnant will repent. Yes, they'll turn back to God. And that's the thing you need to see. That's what Isaiah is trying to get at here. There's a repentance coming in all this. So Shear Yashub means a remnant will return or a remnant will repent would be uh, even a better way to understand it in terms of the broader theological meaning. And um, so what does that remind us of? Theme number two, right? The assurance of a remnant. What's the third child? And you get, you get, you get, you get, you get woohoo! Okay, uh, Dave gets a gold star because I was going to say uh, anybody gets advanced points if you can pronounce um, macher, right? You got, you got the guttural, right? You've been working on that. that sounded good. That's it. Right? Okay. Shalah uh, hashbaz, right? And what does that mean? Swift. Spoil, speedy, pray. It, it's kind of like mene, mene, teka, luparsen, and Daniel, right? It's four words that don't, they don't, they're not forming a sentence. It, it, it's pronouncing something, okay? Two words talking about uh, spoil or pray or booty, meaning the enemy's going to come in and, and clean up. And then two words describing the swiftness or the speed with which that's going to happen. And, of course, uh, maher teaches us about that first theme there, the warning and threat of judgment. So, so God actually personifies the themes and the names of those three children. And they remind us of what's going on as Isaiah unfolds. Okay, So with that in mind, let's turn to theme number two, the remnant shall return. And we'll pick it up in chapter 10, verse 20, where we left off last time. Okay, Make sure your seatbelts are fastened, guys. Here we go. Verse 20. Now, in that day... The remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. Now, by context, what was he just talking about? Do you remember? What was going on right before this? That's right. Remember, in the previous section, God says, Assyria is my instrument that I am using to judge my people, and and that is my means of doing that. But when I'm done doing that, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to punish Assyria because even though they were my instrument of judgment on my people, they are wicked and I will punish them 
for their sin. And we talked about that, that um, the same kind of things we saw in uh, Romans 9 of Pharaoh and, you know, this d- divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how all that works out. Uh, and, and, of course, we still haven't, we still haven't recovered the black boxes uh, for those things, and we'll see those in heaven one day. But for now, we understand that God uses uh, those things in that way to accomplish his purpose. So in that context, Isaiah turns the corner and says, and in that day, there's going to be a change, right, in Israel, the remnant, the house of Jacob, and they're never again going to rely on the one who struck them. That would be Assyria, right? But will truly rely on the Lord the Holy One of Israel. Verse 21, a remnant will return. Where have we seen that? A remnant will return. That's the name again, isn't it? It's exactly the same as chapter 7 when Isaiah, we learn the name of Isaiah's first son. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, for though your people, Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, Only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute it in the midst of the whole land. Okay, so on your notes there, the the first thing we want to see is we we get Shear Yashub there again. um, That same name in describing the remnant will return. And you see how these themes keep popping back up, right? And here it is again. Now notice with me verse 20. What is it that God wants? You, you need to get this because we can get we can get lost in the details and forget. There's one thing that God's trying to impress upon these people. And according to verse 20, what is it? Yeah, to rely upon him. Look at it. Look at it. In that day, they will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will do what? They will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now, you can't see it, but... Um, well, let me ask you this. You parents, raise your hand. Your parents, grandparents, okay. When you're trying to get through to your son or grandson, what do you do to punctuate your speech to ensure that they get the message? What do you do? Raise your voice. Raise your voice. Okay. Get louder. Use their middle name. <laughs> oh, man, and when the, the middle name comes out, look out. Those are, mom's serious, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you raise your voice, use them, right? That, that's true. We have ways that we employ our language to emphasize the importance of something. Well, did you know that your Bible has a way of doing that also? And the way, one of the ways that your Bible brings emphasis to a verse or a conversation is not by raising the volume, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a book, so there's no volume control in that regard. I suppose you could beat the pulpit or something if you're reading it but the way repetition is one way cc's right and the way we see in this verse is they start moving words around now now we do this too in english right sometimes we move words around in order to make the point right we we might for example insert the middle name that uh isn't often there in normal discourse right or we might um we might repeat ourselves we might say uh, Amy, da, 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 Amy, right? We, we might repeat their name or something like that. Well, I want you to notice, look back at verse 20, but we'll, look at the verse there, but we'll truly rely on the Lord. Does your Bible say something like that, truly or in truth? You see that there? 
what the what Isaiah does is he takes that word truly and he pushes it all the way to the end of the sentence. So the way this reads is like this. The Lord, the Holy One of Israel, truly or faithfully, which, you know, we read that in English, we go, that doesn't make any sense. But in Hebrew, what's that, what that is doing is it's underscoring, it's highlighting it, it's, it's raising the volume of what Isaiah, it's using the middle name of the audience. Right? And with that in mind, what is it that he's underscoring here? Why is he highlighting and circling and starring this particular verse? Why is he doing that? Not a trick question? Come on, take a stab at it. Why is he doing that? Okay, it is focusing attention on the subject. And why this verse, though? Because that's kind of the point. Yes, that's it. This is it. It's not to get caught up in the Assyrians. It's not to get caught up in all the... It's saying, God is saying, I want your heart. Will you trust me? Will you rely on me? Stop relying on these other gods and these other leaders. Don't be threatened by, you know, that coalition or that, you know, trust me. Truly trust and rely on me. And that's what God is underscoring. That's, that's when God raises up the volume because that's the point. Now, have we ever heard that before? Is this the only time in the Bible we've heard that? From Genesis to Revelation, God's message is essentially singular. Will you trust me and do what I'm telling you to do? And here it is again. This, this is the message. Now, now notice, sometimes it's easier to trust God when everything's kind of just, right? But threat, fear, consequences, enemies, it's harder to trust God then, isn't it? When there's some threat bearing down, there's some fear, there's some anxiety in your life, and you're going, I don't know if I can trust God because this other thing's going on in my life. And that's where God punctuates, will you rely on me? Will you trust me? That's what God is working to do in the midst of the hearts of the people. Now, what does the remnant do? Look at verse 21. A remnant will return, and uh, we, we mentioned... Um, the, the variation, the, the, you know, this word is built off of shuv, um, and that means repent. It's returning, but it's returning to God. It's repenting back to God, and that reminds us that. Well, what, what two what two themes does that put together? Let me just ask you two, two huge theological themes that God brings together for us to see in this verse. Again, not a trick question. Just put it together. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 what John the Baptist comes and says. It's what Jesus comes and says. It's what Paul comes and says. Repent and trust Him. And here it is. See, it's the the Bible has the same message. It's delivered differently. It might be a different audience. It might be a different context. It's the same thing. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idolatry and trust me. And that that is the heart of what God is looking for. And that's what the remnant does here. They repent and they turn back to God. Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 22. Though 
Israel may be like the sand of the sea. Where does that language come from? Yeah. This is going back to Genesis, right? The Abrahamic covenant where God promises the nation, you're going to be like the stars of the heaven, you're going to be like the sand of the seashore. And yet, what do we learn here that's really insightful? Though God promised that, and that actually literally came to pass, Can you imagine that? And, and you, you got to put your, your 7th century sandals on for a minute to, to get in the mindset of this. You, your whole life, you've been Jewish. You're an Israelite. And you have a, a well-founded national pride because you're God's chosen people, right? And yet, what happened, and we even see it in Jesus' day, what happened to the people called to be God's very own what happened starting back in Genesis through uh, Exodus, through the law, through the kings, through the judges? What happened to most of those people in terms of where their heart ended up? Yeah. They hardened their heart. And that national pride became a, a spiritual arrogance, largely, rather than a humble trust in God. So you can imagine if you've lived your whole life thinking, I'm the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm in the line of the tribe of Judah. And Isaiah says, you know what the reality is? God has made the nation as numerous as the sands of the sea, but there's only a remnant that truly believes, that truly relies on me. Do you imagine how, how utterly shocking and even offensive that must have been? And this is important, guys nationality is not the issue. Acquaintance with God is not the issue. The family you're born in is not the issue. And we understand God had a a special place for the nation of Israel and that he's not done. So let me qualify by saying he is not done with the nation. Terry, we'll get to Romans 11 and you'll see all this. But that is not what makes you right with God, is it? It's in your heart. Do you trust him? That, that's that's the essence of what it means to walk with him and, and to not ever lean on our nationality, our family, our privileges, any of those other things. Now, notice the same theme showing up again. Verse 22, we see the remnant. That's theme number two of the three. Destruction and judgment, verses 22 to 23. Look at this. Only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute it in the midst of the whole land. So God's saying a remnant will repent and the rest will utterly be destroyed. Now, how does Paul use these verses in Romans 9? Let's hold our place because this is one of the many times where we see our verses show up in Romans and again in God's kind providence. You know, Terry and I didn't conspire, you know, several years ago. I'm going to do Isaiah, he's going to do Romans and we're going to we're going to walk these, you know, parallel railroad tracks together. It's um it's just kind of how things have come together. And it's really interesting. Look look at Romans 9. This this is this is actually the section that Terry will be in uh, in the coming weeks. So we're going to get a little bit of a running start here from Isaiah's standpoint. Okay, in the context, I think most of you have been here and have heard uh, kind of where Terry's been in Romans 9 in terms of God's uh, calling and his predestination and his election and how sovereignty works out and God's choosing and all that. But look at this. He gets down and he quotes our verse. 
to, to punctuate, to prove from the Old Testament what he's been telling us. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And then he's going to quote from another verse in Isaiah that we'll get to another time. But what, what is Paul saying here about our verse? Okay, right? That's, that's the, he, he's connecting the remnant to belief in Jesus Christ. That's true. But what's Paul's broader point in Romans 9? Where did he start back in chapter, or excuse me, verse like 2 or 3? It is all about God's selection. And what else? Okay, judgment. Let me just remind you of this. Go back to verse 6. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That's his point. And he quotes our verse in Isaiah as one of many to back that up. Meaning, just because you're an Israelite and you are privileged with the covenants and, and the law and recipients of blessing does not mean if you don't have a trusting heart in him, that you're really truly an Israelite in the sense of being a part of the family of God. That's what he's saying. And see, Paul didn't just pull that out of the air. That's the same thing Isaiah is saying hundreds of years earlier. You see, it's the same message. It's the same message Jesus gave to the Pharisees. You're not Abraham's children. You're of your father, the devil. Ah, right? You talk about stepping on toes. It's the same thing. It's not about your nationality. It's not about your upbringing. It's not about your family. It's not even if you're in this theocratic kingdom of Israel. It's about where your heart is. Right? And that's the same today, isn't it? You can grow up in Grace Bible Church. Praise God for that. We're glad you're here. But many of you, young people, high school, college students, will leave this place and you'll have to decide who you're going to serve. Right? And, and you can't ride the coattails of your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or your Awana leader's faith, your Sunday school teacher's faith. I know you're thankful for all those people. You have to trust Jesus yourself. And you have to decide to follow him yourself. And, and young people, I would just impress upon you that this is, this is Isaiah's message to you. All right. Back to Isaiah. Here comes the judgment. 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of the, the, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did for in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed in their destruction. So God reminds us that the Lord is going to intervene to destroy Assyria. Okay? His judgment on his people is temporary. When that is done, he's going to turn to destroy Assyria. Verse 26, the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian and the rock of Oreb. He's going to throw all these words that you may not, you may not recognize here. All of them are geographic references. They're places in Palestine. 
and they're looking backward like for Midian. For that, it goes back to the time of the judge Gideon and, and the great defeat of the Midianites that we saw there. So God is bringing up these historical references saying, just like God has been faithful in the past, he will do that again. The rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of his fatness. Now, let me show you what's going on here. Watch this. Verse 28. He has come against Ioth and has passed through Migron and Michmash. He deposited his baggage and they have gone through the pass saying, Gabah will be our lodging place. Ramah is terrified. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry out loud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention. Lasha and wretched Anatot. And Madnamah has fled, and the inhabitants of Gebim have sought refuge. Yet today he will, fa- he will halt at Nob. Now what's going on? And I, I, I was going to make a map and to do this. I couldn't find one, and I'm not gifted artistically. You know that. Here, here's what Isaiah is doing. He picks a city right near the border of Assyria and says, they're coming there. And then he picks a city a little bit closer to Judah and says, now they're here. And then he picks another city. He, he, that whole section is cataloging the advance of Assyria through cities getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. Okay, there's a couple of references here. We're not really sure what they mean, but under, there's enough of them that are clear. Isaiah is describing the advance of Assyria toward Jerusalem. And yet, what happens in verse 32? They're going to get to this last city. And what's going to happen? God's going to say no more. And watch this. Verse 33. Behold the Lord, the God of hosts. Remember, that's God in BDUs, right? That's God coming in his military attire there. He will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash, and those who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased, and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with the iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. God counterattacks, protecting Jerusalem and destroying Assyria. And we see that play out historically. So on your notes there, the judgment is described as a clearing of the forest, and that paves the way for a new hope. Notice the imagery. As, as Assyria is destroyed... Uh, Isaiah uses all this timber language. He's going to cut the trees down. There's going to be just a bunch of stumps laying around. And that paves the way as Isaiah again switches topics again, right? He's going to spin the wheel and it's going to come back to a different theme to talk about the Messiah, the coming king. Well, look at, well, look, there's no paragraph break here, right? We, we know those, those are added and, and we just keep right on reading. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. You see that? God clears it out. There's all these stumps, metaphorically speaking, and God says, I'm going to cause something to arise out of a stump. And the stump here is who? Jesse. And we go, who? There's no Jesse in this story, right? Who's, who's Jesse, okay? Well, what, um, 
Let's well, actually let, let's let's finish our notes here. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let, let's fill these in because I know you got blanks there. Okay, God's judgment of His people is temporary, right? Then He will destroy Assyria. We saw that. These verses describe the advance of Assyria toward Jerusalem. Okay, as as they go city to city, getting closer and closer, God stops them in 33 and destroys them. Okay. So now we're caught up. And then the shoot will bring forth from the stem of Jesse. And we go, who's Jesse? What's that? David's father? Why are we talking about David's father? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, this all started back in chapter 7 where Isaiah pulls Ahaz aside and says, you're in the line of David. You're in the Davidic covenant. Don't worry about these other nations because God is on your side as you trust Him, as you rely on Him. Don't freak out and side with the Assyrians. Don't panic because of uh, Samaria and Syria. And You can't lose. Will you trust me? Right. That's where all this started. So He circles back. God destroys the Assyrians and He says, and then in that day... A root emerges, a, a shoot, excuse me, there, there's root, shoot, and branch here. We've got to keep them all the same, okay? Shoot, root, branch, shoot, root, branch. So a shoot springs forth from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is the father of David. And well, let me ask you this. Um... The reference to Jesse here says that this shoot is coming from Jesse, right? Doesn't say, you know, from your father David like we so often hear. It's from Jesse. Why does he doesn't just why does he not say come from David? Why does he go back to Jesse? You know, think think here. This is really crucial. Do you understand the question? Many times in the Bible, we read that the Messiah comes from the line of David. And that's true, right? But here, he doesn't say the line of David. He says a shoot comes from Jesse, David's father. Why is that? Why, why, why might he say that, do you think? This is the part where you talk. So think about it and jump right in. Okay. Okay, that's a good thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. So here's what he's doing. Um, he is saying that this person is paralleling David. Because metaphorically, they come from the same father. You see what he's saying? By coming from Jesse, he's not just saying this is the next guy in the line of David's family. By saying it emerges from Jesse, the writer wants us to see that whoever this ruler is, is as close to David as you can possibly come up with. You see that? That's why when we... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's why the New Testament is going to talk about the Messiah coming in the reign of David. Okay, So a shoot springs forth from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now look at this. What is unique about the shoot and branch? Look at this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
So three different aspects of what the Spirit is going to do in him. And um, uh, who wants to look up something for for the class here? Would someone look up uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16? You don't all need to turn there. Does someone look up Matthew 3, 16, if you don't mind, and read that verse nice and loud for us when you get it. Matthew 3, verse 16. Okay. One of the things that puzzles us is why does Jesus go to the river to be baptized? He's God. He doesn't need baptism, right? So why is he going there? We understand, you know, he's the second Adam and so he's he's living the life that we should have lived. But this tell Matthew 3:16 tells us that part of that baptism was the occasion that the spirit of God came and descended on the Lord Jesus. Why was that event crucial? In light of what we just read in Isaiah. It's a sign. Because we just read here, this branch, this shoot that comes from Jesse, how are we going to know him? How are we going to know him? The Spirit's going to be upon him. And, and you know, as best as we can tell in, in the Gospel accounts, in some way the Spirit had some sort of physical form. Now I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit is not a bird. He's not a bird. I love Christian art, but when we when we make Jesus when we make the Spirit into a dove, that's kind of going too far, in my opinion. But there was something about there was something visual. There was some sort of um, uh, we, in theology they call it a theophany. It's, it's where God takes on some sort of visual representation. And the reason that the Spirit, who is by definition invisible, takes on somewhat of a visible presence and lands on Jesus is to demonstrate that Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, you ready, is happening. And there's no one else in the scripture that that's ever happened to. You see it? So this root, this branch from Jesse receives the Spirit of God in a very special way. And we talk about the different aspects of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, spirit, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 3. What's going to characterize his rule? Look at this. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Now watch this. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with, say it, equity or fairness or justice for the afflicted on the earth. What was one of the crimes that the kings of Israel were committing over and over, that the prophets were always, always criticizing them for? What was it? They're neglecting the poor. They're taking advantage of the afflicted. And God says when this leader comes, he will rule righteously. He will rule in the Spirit of God. He will rule in in justice and fairness. And how are you going to know that? He's going to take care of the poor. He's going to do what's right for the afflicted. And we, we think all these gospel stories come to mind at this point, right? Jesus shows up and, and there's the prostitutes over there. And there's the, the orphans over there. And there's the widows over there. And there's the, the sick over there. And the lame and the blind. And, and Jesus says, um, I'll see you later to the religious leaders. 
And he goes and hangs out with those people. Uh, uh, That's the occasion we see over and over again. And that's a testimony that the Messiah has come. You get it? Okay, back to the text. So he's going to do what the king of Israel was supposed to do to rule and reign in righteousness. Look at this, verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Where do we see that? Think, think. This is Bible Trivia 101 here. Where do we hear that language? In Revelation, right? A sharp sword comes out of his mouth when Jesus shows up, right? He shows up in his, in his, in his um, commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven attire with all the armies of heaven behind him, and he shows up, and he slays the wicked with that sword that emerges from his mouth. You see, you can't understand all this stuff in the New Testament until you know your Old Testament. Because it's, it's showing the fulfillment of these things in many cases. Verse 5, back to Isaiah. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Very similar language to Revelation when Jesus comes. Verse 6, watch this. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb? What? I thought we were talking about Jesus and his rule and his reign. And and now the camera moves from Jesus ruling and reigning. Or we're not, it's, it's the king, right? We don't know it's Jesus yet, but of course we know how the story ends. Now the camera pans to, well, what's, what's his creation going to look like? Now, th- this is supposed to shock you, okay? So if you don't, at the end of this, if you're not like, then you missed it, okay? So, so hear me here. The wolf will will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. How many of you guys have been to Fossil Rim? Been to Fossil Rim, the wonderful wildlife preserve we have out in Glen Rose, okay? Some of you work there, some of you have been there. Um, do they put the wolves and the lambs in the same pen? How about the leopards with the goats? Okay, calves and young lions? Okay, what is going on here? Yeah, the first thing we're supposed to say is, you know, to quote that that great theologian Elmer Fudd, uh, there's something a little squooey going on here, right? I mean, there's something, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But it is, yes, yeah, and that's that's exactly it, is we go, this is not normal in a fallen world, but it is normal the way creation was meant to be in the first place. So we read this, the cow and the bear graze and the young, uh, this is going to get better, and, and moms, I don't want to freak you out here, verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Now, now some of you are dealing with this in summertime, you have small children, right? And this is, this is, this is copperhead season. And no, don't go near those rocks, don't go near those right? And you don't want to do that. And, and there's little Johnny out there, he's playing by the cobra hole. And mom's like, oh, have a good time. Because this is, this is something really bizarre. What happened, according to Genesis 3 and according to Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility when sin came into the world. Now here's the crazy thing. We don't know how all this works yet. But this ruler is coming and he's paralleled with David. He rules and reigns in righteousness. What we've, what we're supposed to be doing with all these kings. He's actually being the king that God has ordained for the king of Israel to be. 
He uniquely possesses the Spirit of God. Well, the Bible says that David had the Spirit of God too, but not like this. And he rules and he reigns and something really interesting happens. Do you remember, those of you that are Chronicles of Narnia fans, C.S. Lewis fans, and you know, it's always winter and never Christmas, right? You remember the line, right? And that was Lewis's picture of the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world. And as you get toward the end of the novels, they start to hear what? The message that winter might being might be coming to an end. When who shows up? The king. You see it? The king comes and this king rules. And as we pan, as we pan the camera from the throne to his kingdom, we go, there's something changing about the world. His rule. Hear me. His rule is beginning to bring about the restoration of all things. And we go, man, this isn't, this isn't David. This isn't even a good king. This is something completely unique as God is beginning to undo the curse through this king. Okay? That's a good question. That's a good question, okay? You'll have to come back next week. We answer that. Okay? We are out of time. But guys, just stand in awe of what we've read. This is actually going to happen. And Isaiah is telling this so that we can be encouraged in our day of affliction that King Jesus is coming and he will make all things well when he arrives. All right? Put put a comma in your notes there. We'll we'll finish up next time. Uh, Father, thank you for these verses that literally are jaw-dropping in what happens. And thank you, Lord, that we know how the story ends, uh, that this ruler's name is Jesus, and he comes to live and die in the first coming so that we might be prepared for his second coming as we're reading in these verses. So, Lord, we are uh, thankful and encouraged. Uh, Lord, give us give us confidence in our day of trouble Uh, that this is who you are, this is your ruler, this is your plan. And you have not given up on us, you have not given up on this world as fallen, as broken as it is. Uh, But your plan is in place, your ruler is coming, Your, uh, your instructions are clear in terms of what will happen. And uh, we, we are thankful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.